Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name's Andrew Harrison. You may have heard the name Peter Thiel, that's T-H-I-E-L. It may already be familiar to you. Maybe you heard about this shadowy Californian venture capitalist and libertarian in connection with Palantir, his invasive data mining giant, which was recently exposed as making £22 million from a backdoor deal with the NHS. Palantir also once claimed, tendentiously, that it had helped to trace Osama bin Laden to his bolt hole in Abbottabad. Maybe you're aware that Thiel co-founded PayPal, was an early investor in Facebook and a sometime mentor to Mark Zuckerberg, and that he was an early backer of Donald Trump's presidential bid. Or maybe you just know him as the guy who destroyed Gorka by secretly funding the wrestler Hulk Hogan's suit against the Silicon Valley gossip site after it published his sex tape. I thought I knew these things, but after I read The Contrarian, a new biography of Teal by Bloomberg Business's features editor and tech reporter Max Chafkin, I realised I didn't know the half of it. Teal emerges from the book as a fascinating and frightening figure, a man who made billions from tech yet despises Silicon Valley, an ultra-libertarian who has said he prefers monarchy to democracy, and a cartoon supervillain with his own lair in New Zealand. Max Chafkin is here with me to talk about this, well, modern-day supervillain character. Hello, Max. How are you? Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I mean, the book, I I really enjoyed it. By which I mean I was terrified by it. And it it almost comes across as like a modern Gatsby more than a than a standard business book. It's got a cast of truly horrible characters. There is a Bond villain with an HQ in New Zealand. There are scenes of debauchery in Teal's own nightclub. And yet out in the wider world, Teal himself is little written about. What what made you want to write this? I mean, it, it is a huge and astonishing story. Yeah, and I, I love the Gatsby analogy. I think that's really great. You know, I kept going back to that at the end of the uh, at the end of the Great Gatsby. There's that thing. There's a line about Gatsby being sort of self created, and um, there is a sense of Teal as this kind of like almost like you're saying like this mythological figure. There's the the supervillain vibes, as you say, and if, but of course for his followers, right? He's a total superhero. He's like an Ayn Rand hero crossed with Ayn Rand. He's like an intellectual and somebody who's doing it. They see him in terms that are really mythical. And that's kind of what got me interested in this, to be honest, because you had these two really strong myths, um, the supervillain, superhero myths. Both, I think, contain quite a lot of truth, right? That's why they've taken off. But then there's like a person behind that. And then the other thing is in the introduction, which, you know, is great, like there there are these just profound contradictions in in Teal's character, right? As this futurist venture capitalist who is also, you know, probably the most important or one of the most important backers of this extremely reactionary political movement. Like how does a a guy who's all about technology and making making the future happen more quickly and who happens to be an immigrant and who happens to be gay end up supporting this presidential candidate who is sort of reactionary, anti-immigrant from a party that's hostile to gays, who it seems utterly hostile to technology and to and to the kinds of things you would think Peter Thiel would be for. So so all those things kind of drew me to it. And I think as you start to unpack those contradictions, it changes the way you think about, I think, the history of technology over the last 20 years and maybe hopefully shed some light about these kind of far right political movements that we're seeing, you know, certainly in the US and of course in the UK and Europe and elsewhere. So if we sort of pull the focus back a little bit, if you if for listeners who only know what I said in the intro, really, that, you know, he's the Palantir guy, he's the destroyed Gorka guy, he's behind PayPal guy. If you're explaining who Peter Thiel is to a person who may only have peripheral understanding of what he is, how does he fit into the Silicon Valley ecosystem? What is what makes him this singular figure? Right. So he is kind of as an investor, the 
key venture capitalist, I would say, over the last 20 years. Now, venture capitalists just give you the quick 101. You know, these are the people who invest to Silicon Valley startup founders. And Thiel has been in this game basically since the late 90s. He co-founded PayPal, which, of course, you know, is one of the main ways that money moves around the internet. He was the key outside backer to Facebook. He's probably the single person besides Mark Zuckerberg most responsible for Mark Zuckerberg's success. After PayPal was sold to eBay, all of these executives who had been involved with him, basically Teal's employees and his friends, they all sort of went out in Silicon Valley and they had they formed this kind of unofficial but but very real network called the PayPal Mafia. The PayPal Mafia includes Elon Musk. It includes Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. Uh, it includes the guys behind YouTube, the guys behind Yelp, and a whole bunch of other companies. And in that network, there is just every tech company you've heard of over the last you know, 20 or so years. And then there's another layer, which is um, Teal's success at Palantir, which is this big defense contractor you brought, brought up in the intro. And he has, because he, you know, wrote a successful book and partly because of the, the force of his network and of his personality, he has a profile where his sort of ideology has, it's not just that his money has kind of spread around Silicon Valley, but, but Teal's methods have spread around Silicon Valley too. And the method is what we now think of as kind of disruption or as the Facebook motto puts it, move fast and break things. It's this idea that tech companies should grow as big as they can, as fast as they can. They should try to achieve monopoly status wherever possible, and they should be willing to break the rules. In other words, the existing order is flawed, and the only way we're going to fix it is if these tech companies come along and change it. Hopefully this is starting to sound familiar because we've seen this play out with not just Facebook, but with Uber, with WeWork, mm. a bunch of companies that have basically kind of cast aside norms. In this worldview, it's not just that breaking the rules is acceptable. It's something, you know, it's okay to do. It's almost like it's better to do it. It's almost like breaking the rules is a social good. And that to me is kind of the core of Peter Thiel's ideology. That's probably more important than even the political ideology. And I think it helps explain kind of why Silicon Valley in particular seems, you know, at times to be so out of control. What I found really surprising was so many, how many people involved in the, the early days of the PayPal mafia and what you call the Tealverse, his kind of extended cinematic universe of uh, mini supervillains. Very, very few of them are tech people. They, they tend to write extreme neo-reactionary opinion pieces for things like the Dartmouth Review, you know, about why women shouldn't vote and incendiary extreme right pieces about race and so forth. And so many of these companies are built by people who aren't really technologists. They've, they've got a political axe to grind. And Peter Thiel's not a technologist. I mean, he's somebody, of course, who's very, at this point, you know, very fluent in, in, in technology and can certainly talk about it all day long. But he's not an engineer and he's not a coder. And he came into PayPal, as you say, not as a technologist or even really a business guy, but, but as, a, as an investor, a hedge fund person, a finance guy, and also basically a right-wing political activist. One of the things that makes this guy so interesting is that, you know, he's had these different acts of his life. And if you pulled a random reader of, I don't know, the National Review or something and said in 1996 and said, who is Peter Thiel? They would say he is a really promising young conservative. And that's because Thiel at Stanford started this newspaper called the Stanford Review. There was at the time this was happening on college campuses, you know, basically across the country. There's a, a really famous paper, the Dartmouth Review, which um, was started in part by this guy, Dinesh D'Souza. He's one of these people who was beating the drum about Obama being supposedly not born in the U.S. The Stanford Review 
basically is Teal's version of that. And many of these early PayPal employees, that's where they come from. They come from Peter Thiel's activist newspaper. As you said, the paper was really far out there, walking right up to the line and sometimes crossing it on issues of race, of gender. There are all these stunts that I think in retrospect, you know, seem extremely homophobic, borderline racist, uh, sexist. And I think that that is really important because people think of Silicon Valley as being this this essentially apolitical or sort of technocratic world. And and it is at times, but but this network, the PayPal Mafia, is not that. The thing that kept them together, that that gave them the energy to start this company, was had nothing to do with technology, it was this kind of hardcore libertarian activist project. And I think that that probably was really useful. You know, I mean they they were coming at at the problem from a different angle and it probably goes some some distance to explaining like why PayPal was successful, because there were all these other currency companies that, that failed around the same time. Let's talk about Palantir for a minute. This this astonishing multi-billion dollar big data company, Teal, founded. It's such a complicated and wide-ranging thing. It's almost difficult for somebody like me to describe exactly what it does. And yet we know it's contracted to everything from the CIA to the NHS, not a collection of initials that you really thought would sit together. What is it? And should we in Britain worry that Palantir is connected to to the NHS? Well, so, okay, so Palantir, I'm just going to give you the quick story. I mean, Palantir grew out of an effort by Peter Thiel in 2004 to find a business to basically to sell to to the US government. So if you remember post 9/11, especially in the US, but I think this is going on, you know, in in a lot of the West, there was this feeling like we had missed warning signs, right? The the hijackers of the of the planes had all been in the US for for a long time. They'd been taking flying lessons. There was this huge push among, you know, at very high levels of the of the Bush administration and, you know, our intelligence services to do more with kind of the the data we had. Peter Thiel is really good at selling into kind of market opportunities or, or put another way, selling into bubbles. And what he saw, I think, was that this was an opportunity and he realized that PayPal – so PayPal had developed anti-money laundering technology that was based on network analysis and Palantir originally was an effort to take that and sell it to the government. And he gets money from the CIA and the company goes on this very long kind of winding quest to develop technology that can basically take the data that, say, the CIA or a big bank or the NHS already has and make sense of it. And that doesn't sound all that interesting or scary or whatever. But when you know a little bit about how data mining works, it actually can get there pretty quickly. So this story came out, I don't know, eight years ago or something in the Times Magazine. But, you know, Target can tell, Target, the the retailer, can tell who Mm. is pregnant and who is not, right, by what they're buying. If you take somebody's Facebook data, you can see what their sexual orientation is, whether they're pregnant or not, whether they're cheating on their spouse. You know, you can go really deep in somebody's kind of personal life by not listening to someone's phone calls, but just looking at calls that are going in and out. So, So that's the concept. It's circumstantial, isn't it? They can tell you're likely to move house if you've been looking at mattress adverts. Exactly. Truck adverts and so forth. You're right. They're not hacking your iPhone, but they're using the silhouette of what you search for and what you read. Right. And that's the privacy concern. And it gets even scarier when you start combining data sets, which is, of course, something that intelligence agencies could do potentially with, you know, with the help of, of somebody like Palantir. So if you took somebody's Facebook data and their browsing history and their phone call, it starts to be like a very full picture of, of someone's 
identity and potentially a violation of kind of like the basic norms of privacy that we kind of all take for granted. Now, that's the kind of crazy, scary case. And what's really interesting is that is kind of the story that Palantir told in its early years. And Palantir was successful in part because, you know, you would think a, a, a surveillance company would kind of shy away from the big brother narrative. But Peter Thiel, of course, is a contrarian, and he's also a very good marketer. And Palantir, instead of instead of trying to run away from this narrative, really embraced it. Kind of like tried to lean into the the, the sketchy quality, um, uh, yes. because which which when you think about it, actually makes sense, right? Because they had some government deals, but they were trying to get more business, right? And if you're Bank of America or J.P. Morgan, you don't want bad data mining, right? You want CIA level data mining, and that's kind of to some extent what Palantir was selling. Before people get too kind of freaked out, I think there are a couple of things that are worth pointing out. One is it's not clear. First of all, Palantir says that they're super careful about data. They insist that they're respecting user privacy and so on. I think there are reasons to be skeptical of that. But I just want to put that out there. The second thing is it's not clear how good Palantir even is. And and for a long time, and I mean from 2004 to 2016, there were real questions being raised both in corporate America, which Palantir had been selling very aggressively, and within the U.S. government about just how good this thing was. The Army gave a huge contract, uh, this this huge uh, database contract, to a different defense contractor, Palantir sued. So going into the 2016 election, Palantir is really not doing super well. The bizarre standout on Palantir is that it's it's actually named after a seeing eye device from Lord of the Rings. Right. Isn't it? And there's a whole load of Tolkien in Thiel's world. Another company called Anduril, which is, I don't know, is it a sword or an elf or something? I can't quite Anduril, remember. Anduril, yeah, This yeah. whole world it's is... It's all elvish. It's, it's, like this, <laughs> it's like a whole world of Dungeons and Dragons and antisocial males. It's like a gigantic bedroom. There seems to be this kind of emotional appeal of, you know, you boil down libertarianism down to, no, mum, I won't tidy my room. And yet they've turned it into a multi-billion dollar commercial and political operation what what is it with the appeal of, of Tolkien to Teal is it just that it's, is it just arrested development I think it's a couple of things and I think one of them is the kind of geeky signaling you're talking about so let's be a little more generous although I think it's it's fair to ask like whether this supposed public intellectual whose you know favorite books are all basically children's books what that says about him but but leaving that aside I think one thing Teal has done really well is find ways to appeal to people like himself. You know, these geeky, brilliant introverts, whatever. A lot of people grow up on Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and fantasy fiction. And, and, and you know, these stories are great and they capture our imagination, whatever. So I think, I think some of it is just can be explained as genuine affinity. Some of it can be explained as marketing. But of course, there's also Tolkien... And I think a lot of people who read Lord of the Rings, of course, see an allegory about the West and about the the extent to which the U.S. and Europe are at odds with with the rest of the world. A lot of people would take issue with that, you know, reading. Uh, but but in any case, Anduril, which is a, a Peter Thiel backed company that makes technology for the U.S. border wall, among other things, that means flame of the West. It's it's Aragon's sword, I believe. And so, you know, it's this like, we got to protect the West from the migrants or something, you know, that's kind of the political reading. Also, maybe you just need kind of a naming scheme. And it's sort of funny. I'm probably going to butcher this. And like, you know, luckily, the book was fact checked. My fact checker was very familiar with Lord of the Rings. So so she was uh, very helpful here. But Palantir is this all seeing orb 
in Lord of the Rings. And I think there's several of them, but there's the there's the main one that I think appears in the books is is Sauron's orb. And of course, Sauron is not the good guy in Lord of the Rings. He's the bad guy. And so, like I said, it was I think the name was another way to kind of embrace this sort of big brother narrative. And the way that even today, Palantir CEO Alex Karp talks about the company as this really dangerous and powerful thing, as if it were really like Sauron's orb. And, you know, we need to keep Sauron's orb in the hands of, of say, like the U.S. and its allies. I think that that is really interesting and, and maybe bordering on dangerous because even if Palantir is completely responsible, it sort of creates a permission structure for other companies to be really aggressive. And I think there's an extent to which this applies to a lot of what Teal has done, where, where Teal hasn't necessarily done anything totally wrong, but he's sort of created this permission structure that can really open the door to a lot of bad stuff. And then the other thing is, I think we really should question just how good this thing is. I talked to a lot of people who were very skeptical about the all-seeing nature of Palantir. There's a critique that I think is has a lot of validity that that this is a company that was almost pretending to be a software company, but in fact was basically like a glorified management consultancy charging governments, the NHS, the CIA, whoever, just huge sums of money to ship these you know, very expensive Silicon Valley engineers into their offices. And where maybe it was a little better than what they had before, but it wasn't some you know, amazing improvement and it was quite expensive. There are a lot of kind of funny bits where at various turning points in Palantir. They're like, we've just sold this to the US government for $20 billion. Now we better work out what it does. We need to find a job for it. His attempt to pack the early Trump cabinet with their tailbots, people from the tailverse, kind of failed, didn't it? I want to ask you two things. Firstly, you know, what is, does he have a vision for the way he wants society to be? And does he have a round two in mind? Because it's pretty clear now that Trumpism isn't dead. It's going to come back in another form. Does Teal have something lined up for the next round? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. But let me explain a little bit. One of the reasons that Teal wasn't more successful kind of within the Trump administration is because he's sort of a political neophyte. He's somebody who had never, you know, kind of been in those conditions. I also think a, a sort of second reason was that he was too extreme for Trump, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. <laughs> but like when you look at what at the kinds of people he put forward for positions in the Trump administration. They were two out there for Steve Bannon. You know, Steve Bannon is supposedly the most extreme member of that inner circle. And mm. Bannon, like, couldn't handle Teal's FDA picks. He was picking people to run the, the FDA, um, which is the Food and Drug Administration, who basically wanted to get rid of the FDA. I mean, you know, it's like super extreme, bordering on kind of comical. It's like, this is like, this would be a great dorm room suggestion, but maybe not like yeah. a suggestion you should actually put in front of the U.S. Senate for confirmation. Why do we need clinical trials? We can just test it on the people when they buy it. Kind <laughs> of stuff. That, that is what, and that is like what they believe. I mean, you know, that, yes. that's not an exaggeration. That That is the argument. The argument is that it would be better if consumers could just try experimental drugs whenever they want, if take it out of the hands of government. So yeah, and it's it's like I said, it's too extreme. I also wonder how hard Teal tried. Teal has, over the years, attached himself to different political movements and sort of moved on. You know, so he was a big supporter of Ron Paul uh, in 2012. But, and as I write in the book, I don't think he was a supporter of Ron Paul because he thought Ron Paul was going to be president or because he thought Ron Paul was even particularly well-qualified 
to be president, but I think he was a supporter of Ron Paul because he saw this movement of people that was really excited about Ron Paul that kind of had a lot in common with the Peter Thiel verse, with these Lord of the Rings chugging fans of technology, of, you know, whatever. And and so I think that was part of the, that was part of it. And I think to some extent, the same thing with Trump. I mean, fast forward to 2020, right? When Trump, Trump loses the election and his presidency kind of ends in disgrace. I mean, we had horrible pandemic and then this failed insurrection. Teal is long gone by that point. And, and he had managed to kind of extricate himself from Trump world pretty effectively where he didn't have to kind of cut ties with Trump. A lot of prominent Republicans at that, you know, at that moment had to sort of disavow, say, you know, hey, I'm not in favor of insurrections or, or you know, Trump's do, actually doing kind of a bad job with COVID. Thiel was, was sort of out of the loop by that point, which I think played to his advantage because he gets to keep all the credibility, all the political credibility of being a hard right ideologue, as Trumpy as Trump, but without any of the without any of the downside. And so you see him emerge from post January 6th as like a key player in this kind of post Trump political movement. So Teal right now is uh, backing a couple of Senate candidates. He's given them each 10 million bucks to a, a super PAC. Uh, one is Blake Masters, who is like a longtime Teal aide. He's he's the co-author of Peter Teal's book Zero to One. He's still currently employed by Peter Teal, and he is running for Senate in Arizona in an Arizona Republican primary, basically on a kind of Tealist platform, hardcore on immigration. You know, build the wall, send the immigrants back, kind of thing. It's hardcore on voting and on kind of the. It's a lot of winking at the sort of Trump narrative that the the 2020 election was stolen. The Teal Pack is running ads against one of his opponents, complaining that the, this opponent who's the attorney general of Arizona didn't, you know, try to overturn the election results. So that's one race. And there's another race in Ohio, another Senate race with this guy, J.D. Vance, who's pretty well known as the author of Hillbilly Elegy and who also worked for Teal for a couple of years and who now runs a venture capital fund in which Teal is a major investor. J.D. Vance in 2016 was a never Trumper. You know, he said, God have mercy on us if we're going to be this mean to immigrants. And in 2021, just before... Teal announced this $10 million donation to, to J.D. Vance's PAC. J.D. Vance goes on Sebastian Gorka's podcast and does like a full apology, basically says, you know, I was totally wrong about Trump and Trumpism is great. And so so Teal, I think, is is poised to play that role as the kind of money behind this movement. And the movement, of course, is rather small right now. You know, it's not a huge part of our electorate. It's very unlikely that a Trumpist candidate could be elected president, maybe unless it's Donald Trump. But it's it's an ascendant movement, and they increasingly have quite a lot of clout within the Republican Party. And I think Peter Thiel is going to continue to have a seat at the table, uh, you know, in government, you know, going forward. Finally, Thiel famously destroyed Gorka for outing him as gay in, in a fairly obnoxious fashion, but still it was kind of reportage. Uh, he used Hulk Hogan as his proxy. Were you surprised at the lengths you discovered that he'd gone to? Because it was more than just Hulk Hogan, wasn't it? It was a blizzard of vexatious lawsuits. And were you personally worried in researching this very well-researched book that you would somehow upset him and that he might come after you? Yeah. Um. The answer to that last question is, is yes. Yeah, I was worried. But let me let me caveat that a little bit because I do think that the concerns about reporting on Peter Thiel aren't that different from reporting on any billionaire, unfortunately. So as you said, one thing that I kind of learned in, in researching this book 
is that the this Gawker campaign, which the the best known part of it is is the Hulk Hogan affair, where where Teal, who had already been nursing this grudge against Gawker for years over a blog post that they they did in two thousand eight, where they said that he was gay, when at the time you know he was out to friends and family, out to employees, but not out publicly. The Hogan lawsuit, which he which he attached himself to, you know, backing paying Hogan's legal bills, and you know, which ultimately destroyed Gawker and and bankrupted the um, the founder of Gawker, in addition to the company. Company was just like the latest thing. It was the thing that worked. But there was this long-running campaign to try to deal with, as he, you know, as he saw it, this Gawker problem, and it included kind of attempts to court Gawker. It also included use of private investigators and things like that. And it also included this kind of larger campaign against Gawker that kind of merged at times with the alt-right, where you had a lot of a lot of these alt-right figures were really mad at Gawker as well and were were doing lawsuits and kind of inform, what you might think of as information warfare. And Teal was supportive of that stuff as well. So it was this kind of long campaign. And of course, it ended in the in the destruction of Gawker. I think smart people can disagree about whether Teal was justified to feel the way he did about Gawker. You know, they, the, this blog, this 2008 blog post, I think, was unacceptable, you know, unacceptable journalistically. And I've talked to the author of it. I understand why they published it, but I think it, it was it was bad. But is that enough justification for a billionaire to conduct a many years long secret revenge campaign that results in the destruction of an entire company, um, including, you know, more than 100 employees, many of whom, uh, I think the vast majority of whom had literally nothing to do with this original infraction. It's a response that I don't think is proportional. And it's also a response that I think was designed to create a chilling factor and and a chilling effect, not just on anyone who's going to write about um, Peter Thiel, but anyone who's going to write about um, any billionaire. And I think that is something that should really bother people. Because now when any journalist, including myself, goes to write about him, you know, we have to think about the Gawker litigation and, and the risk to our, our families and our livelihood. That's something that goes on, not just for my book, but for anyone who's even like probably even just writing a review of my book, right? They're going to have to deal with the kind of the same implications or just, you know, writing a normal news story about the guy. Like this is going to be a conversation in every newsroom. And that is, you know, as somebody who really believes in in freedom of, of the press and 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 of that as a big part of our democratic, you know, way of life, that 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 is scary. It sucks. And the other thing is that Teal, by doing this and by kind of bragging about it. You know, he cuz he didn't just do it. He he then gave an interview to Andrew Ross Sorkin saying it was the greatest philanthropic decision of my entire life. Has created basically a permission structure and a business model for anyone else to pursue this at any time. So he hasn't just changed the way that journalists approach him, but he's changed the way we approach anyone with power. And at a time when so much power is concentrated in the hands of these billionaires, and in particular these tech billionaires, like I, it just seems really, really unfortunate. It seems like something that ha- is going to have serious implications for, for our democracy going forward. So for all those reasons, I was, I was concerned. But like I said, because it's kind of I feel like it's just the blanket state that we all work in. You know, I felt like I also had sort of no choice to, but to to move forward. Well, good luck with it. I'm hoping he doesn't think about podcasts as well. Otherwise, we're in trouble too. But um, Max Chefkin, thanks for talking to us. The book's amazing. Like I say, it is. It's a modern day epic and almost something that works far better as as journalism than it would as fiction because as fiction you would say you could not make this up thanks andrew so i really enjoyed it yeah thank you so much and thanks for having me really enjoyed the conversation
The Contrarian is out now from Bloomsbury. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favour and forward it to three like-minded friends, unless they're a billionaire living in his own private vault in New Zealand. Sharing the podcast has really helped our listener figures, it's, it's, so we really do appreciate it. It's brought a lot more people into the bunker. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.